Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chels, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming to you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm one of your hosts, Jackie. I'm from Houston, and I've got my two friends, Rahul and Alex, here. But today, we have a very special guest, Ben Jacobs. Ben is a sports broadcaster who has covered multiple World Cups, Olympic Games, Grand Slams, and interviewed likes of Lionel Messi, Usain Bolt, Mike Tyson, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods. That's a lot to say. Welcome to the Premier Chels, Ben. Thank you very much. You've been on my website reading the bio, which makes me sound a lot cooler than I actually am in reality. But it's certainly good to be here and speak to you guys, especially because the American links now. I'm at CBS Sports, where I'm a full-time reporter. So in the context of that Chelsea ownership, it's going to be very interesting because all along there's been heavy American links in all the prospective owners, which means from the perspective of anybody in North America, it's a really intriguing sale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've, you've opened the topic that we wanted to lead in with, Ben, and let's just jump right into it. I think some of the things we're hearing as Chelsea fans, as potentially Roman was trying to sell Chelsea back in 2019, or at least there were some unconfirmed bids coming in. Um, was this something you know about? And was this expedited this year because of the war in Ukraine? Well, they're two separate things, I suppose, but Roman Abramovich was certainly listening to offers, not just in 2019, but 2018 as well. And then if we jump forward to the current sale process, we've now seen two separate parties who were interested back then show their interest again. One, the Ricketts family, who, of course, went all the way through a process of doing due diligence in 2018, and another, a last-minute bid from Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who also tried to buy Chelsea in 2019 but failed to agree a price with Roman Abramovich. So I think what that history tells us is that Abramovich, for the right price, was always willing to sell. And that's no surprise over the last two or three years, because obviously even before the sanctions and the war in Ukraine forcing him effectively out of the football club, he was always struggling to get into the UK and attend Chelsea matches. And when we saw him, when Chelsea won the Champions League, embracing Thomas Tuchel, it was difficult almost because that was kind of the first real interaction, at least in any kind of public venue that they'd had. So Abramovich, I think, always realised that the situation at Chelsea was untenable as far as him being the owner was concerned. What we don't know is whether, should a sale have happened, if he would have kept any kind of stake, even if it wasn't a controlling stake, or tried to have an affinity with the football club, or if it would have been a clean-cut sale. But fundamentally, price was always the sticking point historically, whereas now it's more of a fire sale. And although the price has been heavily negotiated and Rain Group were always tasked with trying to get about $4.5 billion, it's obviously not the only factor in the sale because the money doesn't go directly to Abramovich and instead it will be donated, the sale proceeds, to the victims of the war in Ukraine. We need a bit more clarity as to exactly where it's going and how and if Chelsea are going to have to found a new charitable trust. But fundamentally, if you kind of combine the history and now, you don't want to link them directly, but we do know that historically Roman Abramovich has thought about how he would exit Chelsea. But then when the war in Ukraine happened, that process was expedited and now is a completely different scenario to back then. Yeah, I mean, you've done a good job of just breaking it down for us. And for me, 
I like to think I'm a huge Chelsea fan, but hearing it from you about 2018, 2019, that's news to me. And that's something important for us to understand is while the, the war in Ukraine definitely seems like it's the reason he's selling Chelsea, there's a little more history towards the back end of it. But I want to touch a little bit more on the sanctions and, and go in depth over there and what you can tell us about that, because as Chelsea fans, we interact with other Chelsea fans on, on the social media, on the web, uh, all across the globe. And a lot of them feel like the sanctions, while in place against Roman Abramovich, almost hurt us as Chelsea fans. Couldn't go to the mega store, buy uh, jerseys, tickets. We couldn't go watch our favorite team play. Can you shed some light on the sanctions and what they're trying to do there? And then beyond that, what role is the government going to take in, in the sale of Chelsea? It's a good question. I think the first part regarding the sanctions is a knock-on of the fact that Abramovich, as somebody who has been barred by the government, cannot therefore conduct business, and Chelsea is obviously one of his major business interests. So sport, traditionally in this scenario, tries not to lead. It attempts, where possible, to be a mediator or a pacifier, and you would never get a scenario where a sports league like the Premier League imposed a block or a sanction on somebody like Roman Abramovich before the government. But as soon as the government act, then sport will try and mirror that. So Chelsea fans naturally feel a bit hard done by because it's impacted them as individuals, regardless of their view on the war in Ukraine and fans for a short period were not allowed to travel and merchandising has been blocked as you've rightly pointed out and all of these things have a direct effect on the day-to-day -day fan who only cares about their football club but also more importantly very much cares and empathizes with the victims of the war in Ukraine as well but unfortunately it isn't a case of Chelsea being allowed to function after the government have imposed sanctions. So when you look at Russia, for example, in the context of doping, even though that's a far less severe scandal, it's a significant one within sport. What happens at an Olympic Games or has done historically is instead of sport determining that Russia is going to be punished or fined or banned directly, what they do is issue that suspension in a sporting context, but at the same time, tell the athletes that are clean that they can still compete under a neutral flag. And again, that's one example away from Chelsea and football of sport trying to be only a mediator. But as soon as a blanket sanction comes in, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the EU and many other parts of the world, then the Premier League and those within the sporting world want to replicate that. And that's ultimately why the sanctions have been imposed. And because of the severity of them, it means that Chelsea Football Club are effectively being punished for the actions or perceived actions of Roman Abramovich. And that is ultimately why he has to sell the football club, because if he doesn't and just stays in place, then nobody in government or the Premier League or the world of sport is going to give Chelsea any leeway and eventually the club would not exist anymore because it wouldn't be able to pay any of its essential outgoings. So it was a very difficult position and it ultimately forced Roman Abramovich to sell and he did that very slowly almost to begin with, with quite a vague statement 
And that allowed a little bit of time for Chelsea to try and put a few things in place because they were well aware legally that anything that was already ongoing in terms of spending or contract negotiations could be continued because it came into force before the sanctions began. And that's important because as Chelsea now enter into the off-season, if a sale is not done by May the 31st or before then, it's going to put the football club in a difficult position. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've, you've said it in such a way that as a Chelsea fan, it's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's definitely something that we have to understand. It's not necessarily targeted at Chelsea fans or Chelsea football club, but overall what everybody can do to kind of add it up there. So I want to continue with the other question about the government's role in the sale of the club and going more in depth about what their role specifically is with the finances or playing a hand and who actually gets to become the owner of Chelsea Football Club? Yeah, so the government are there in theory only to approve the new license and at the same time see whether they have to amend or revoke or suspend the existing special license. And we've heard already from the UK Culture Secretary that Chelsea are, quote, on borrowed time. So we don't anticipate the first part, the special licence that exists at the moment, will be amended in any way that benefits Chelsea or extended beyond May the 31st. So there's a very hard deadline there. I think the UK government feel that they've engaged with Chelsea long enough and being patient through this sale process, even though when it first began, they were very much told it was a fire sale. But actually, the sale process has kind of been carried out on Chelsea's terms and timescale. And the British government are not necessarily particularly happy or enamoured by that. And then their second role is when the new ownership group comes in to ensure that the purchase agreement in place is legit from their point of view, and that no funds from the sale go directly to Roman Abramovich. And then the government will have a third role, which is less official, I suppose, and is more of a vested interest in the future of Chelsea, particularly as regards areas of the football club that will require government engagement or will have benefit in wider areas of Chelsea and the London community that in turn, the government would want a role or a say in. So particularly that's the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge. Why? Because once that's redeveloped, it will boost the community. It might even have a tourism effect. It will certainly have a jobs effect and there'll be areas if Chelsea are smart in their redevelopment that are not specifically football related. So, you know, your modern stadium, if you were just building Stamford Bridge from scratch, would ideally have things like a hotel, restaurants. It would stage things that are non-football events throughout the year. And the government in turn and the local community would look to reap the benefits from that. So there would naturally be some back and forth and dialogue. So you have sort of two official bits of paperwork, the special license first that currently exists, and the government have obviously been across that 
and they allowed Chelsea the use of more funds so they could pay their essential outgoings and get to the end of the season. And then you have the new sale agreement that the government will be across. And then over time, the government will just want a strong relationship with the new Chelsea owners for the reasons that I've mentioned. The government will not pick the new Chelsea owner. Many Chelsea fans might feel like they're going to have a say. And you'll certainly read some reports out there that say that Individuals like Rishi Sunak or even Boris Johnson, the prime minister, are going to be influential in the process. But I don't believe that that's the case. But what's interesting is that Jim Ratcliffe said in his statement when he entered at the 11th hour that it was a, quote, British bid. And nationality shouldn't have anything whatsoever to do with this. Yet, if we then look at the Bowley bid, they've brought in the former chancellor, George Osborne, who obviously also has strong government contacts. So by implication from those two points, you could make an argument if you're being slightly more cynical that the government officially cannot pick the new Chelsea owner, but unofficially will have some kind of dialogue and say. And if you talk to, for example, Newcastle United supporters during their controversial takeover by the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, they also are of the strong belief that the government officially said we cannot have a say or a role, but unofficially they have a very big influence. So if you are of the more cynical disposition, you may say the fourth aspect of the government's role is that they will have a very big say on who the final Chelsea owner is. But if we go by the book and by the statements that are out there, then all they can do is make sure that the special license currently is in place, that the new sale agreement is in place, and that Roman Abramovich doesn't receive any funds from the sale. And that formally is all they're allowed to do in this process. Okay, and you've laid that out very clearly, but as a Chelsea fan, the last two, three months have made me very cynical. And so I'm going to lean towards that direction when we see who the final owner will be. I only have one more question for you, Ben, and that's about Rain Group. Uh, do you know much about them? What's their particular role in this? Because it sounds like they're based in the US, but they're handling the sale for Chelsea. Yeah, Rain Group are a merchant bank. They're based out of the US. They're certainly not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They stand to make anything between 50 and 70 million dollars from the sale process. It doesn't appear that they're specifically incentivized, though, by the price. So Chelsea have obviously given them a target, but as far as I'm aware, they won't take a specific percentage commission from the final sale amount, but they will get a flat rate. And then on top of that, there could well be a number of bonuses activated, depending on if they meet other KPIs, most likely if a sale happens by the planned deadline, which probably in their contract is May the 31st, they might get a little bit or a lot extra. And Chelsea have worked with them before. Chelsea have always had a vested interest out in the US. So they are an organization known to Bruce Buck, who obviously, as an American lawyer, will have a direct relationship with them, but also Roman Abramovich. And they are trusted for two reasons. One, because they can put a formal structure to the sale process. And two, because they know a lot of the big businesses and individuals who might buy a football club. So therefore, when they put out tender 
to buy Chelsea Football Club, they can also reach out to a number of contacts who they've got direct ins to in order to see whose interest is peaked. And that has ultimately sped up the sale process. So actually, even though Chelsea fans will look at it as rain have been really slow, and unfortunately there have been delays over the last few weeks after the process started, before the process started, the shortlisting of different candidates, even the ones that didn't put bids forward, was done at a much faster process specifically because of rain. And I don't think if Chelsea, especially without Abramovich being able to be involved, had just put out invites directly, I'm not sure they would have got so many groups come forward so quickly. And rain also take a lot of the admin away from Chelsea. So Chelsea don't have to field the calls. They don't have to answer the questions. They can focus on the football side, the business side, and ultimately the engagement with the government to make sure that the club can function, whilst Rain whittle a shortlist down from hundreds of interested calls or emails to really only eight to ten serious bidders, and then, of course, four, then the Ricketts family pulled out, and three, and now one, the preferred bidder, the Todd Bowley group, plus the late bid away from that process from Jim Ratcliffe. Now, the irony is that Rain are there to provide structure, but Jim Ratcliffe went straight to Chelsea and bypassed the process. And he's not necessarily in it directly against Bowley so much as they're lurking in the background. But Chelsea haven't said no to Ratcliffe yet. And yet Bowley's gone through the whole process through Rain Group. So I think the Bowley Group, the failed consortiums and Rain Group will be quite disappointed by that. But ultimately, Rain are there to turn the process into something that's a little bit more transparent. And I don't mean transparent in terms of to you and me, because they're not going to make all the details public, but transparent as far as the suitors are concerned and Chelsea are concerned, because there's clear structure. So they've made the sale of Chelsea a little bit like a broadcast tender where you're invited to bid, you're told what areas you have to respond to, you provide a formal pitch you then get put through if successful to the next stage, at which point you can begin due diligence. So then instead of just you pitching, you can ask questions back to Chelsea and start engaging with supporters groups. Then a final offer comes in and each of the offers is supposedly scored alongside each other based on the same criteria. And that's the same for a bid to get broadcast rights for, let's say, the Qatar World Cup. You have to answer the same questions, respond to the same things. So each bid can effectively be scored evenly. And then one of them is selected. Then they're usually given a period of exclusivity to complete the deal. It's very often longer than the one week that the Bowley group will get, but this sale needs to be done quickly. And during that period of exclusivity, you by the end of it have to sign a purchase agreement. And if you do, providing that you then tick all the rest of the boxes. So in this case, government clearing it, Premier League owners and directors test, and most importantly, with a traditional sale, actually showing you've got the funds and transferring them. As long as you do all those things after you've signed the purchase agreement, you have the football club very quickly. And that's how the process should work. And Rain are there to make sure that step by step by step, there is a clarity. But what we've seen in the last few days is a lack of clarity because whilst one group that thinks they're successful and are heading into a period of exclusivity have put in all of the pitches and the effort and they've gone through a very structured and rigid process behind closed doors and they've made trips to London and they've met with fan groups and they've been at games and they think they're in pole position, overnight someone else comes in and puts down a relatively large bid and suddenly there could still be two in the race. 
So the optics of that don't look particularly good on Chelsea, but fundamentally, I think rain sources still tell me that they believe their process will run start to finish. And if it does so smoothly from here, there's only one winner and Todd Bowley will be the next owner of Chelsea Football Club. Got it. And I think that's important to note with Brain Group's you know, role in this whole thing. I didn't know they had the context to reach out and find those so-called billionaires or the consortiums or individuals that were interested in Chelsea. And I think it's important to note that because we as as Chelsea fans want to get the club sold so that we can continue to do business. But these do these processes do take a long time. And so it's nice to have somebody in between that can go out and source all of these people. Now, I know Alex has a few questions. You've done a really good job of jumping into some of the questions Alex may have here, specifically around the late bid that's coming in. But Alex, I'll pass it over to you to dig a little deeper on that late bid. Yeah, I guess so. From what you've said, it, it seems like you're definitely of the mind that the bully led consortium is having followed this process through th- from the beginning is still very much the clear favorite in that sense. I know we've seen some people have put their names out. Now it seems like Jim Ratcliffe came in with a serious, serious last minute bid. Um, Do you think that how, how much would you say the success of that bid would be down to Chelsea's choice versus Reign's choice? I know you got into that a little versus, I know you said the government maybe has an interest in both parties, depending on their different connections. Who ultimately do you think the decision lies with? I mean, the decision lies with Chelsea. It's as simple as that. Rain Group are not there from this point onwards to pick a winner. They're only there to facilitate a process relatively neutrally. And then after a preferred bidder has been presented to Chelsea and that preferred bidder has come with Chelsea's consultation, it's entirely up to the existing Chelsea infrastructure to make a decision. Now, could argue, and I think that it's very logical to assume that Roman Abramovich still has a direct say. So officially he can't be involved, but we also know that he's well aware of who the suitors are. And only a few days ago, Abramovich was directly asking for 500 million, so about 700 million US dollars extra to be put into the charitable fund, which is going to the victims of the war in Ukraine. So it's going to be Bruce Buck, it's going to be Chelsea executives, it's going to be Roman Abramovich. The government officially cannot have a say, but of course they've got a vested interest in the sale. And like I say, Rain are far more operational and logistical. So their executives are not picking, they're only putting forwards options. And Chelsea, in effect, will have chosen the preferred bidder rather than Rain Group, but Rain Group, in all likelihood, because the process is perhaps more structured and rigid than people realise, will have scored the bids and put those scores or recommendations forward to Chelsea. But if Chelsea chose to bypass them because all three bids were strong and ultimately select a different preferred bidder, then Rain Group would say, great, we made our recommendations, but for whatever reason, you went in a different direction. And because of Chelsea's involvement, they would not have put the Bowley bid forwards as the preferred bidder, and they would not be entering into a exclusive period, even though it's only a short one, if actually they wanted the Radcliffe bid. So the Radcliffe bid is there for a number of reasons. First of all, because it's serious and credible, at least financially speaking. Second of all, because it's vague at this point, because it's still relatively new. 
So Chelsea, rather than only having a preferred bidder, would much rather leave the Radcliffe bid kind of hanging. And at the same time, he can flesh that out. And then they've got a backup in case, for whatever reason, something falls through. There's an unexpected hurdle. And they've also got pressure and leverage because the Bowley bid are disappointed and surprised by the last minute bid from Radcliffe. And it's there looming whilst the Bowley bid have to complete the sale or will try to anyway at speed. So it gives Chelsea an extra kind of weapon or card because instead of only allowing Bowley to complete the sale and maybe renegotiate small things, maybe take a bit of extra time, which is normal in a sale. Now, in theory, there's two in the race. But I only yeah. say in theory because Ratcliffe is not in the same race. He didn't yeah. go through the rain group process. It's a rogue bid in many ways. But it's also important to understand that Ratcliffe hasn't only issued a statement and said he can put down a bunch of cash, 5.3 billion US dollars, 4.25 billion in English pounds. Radcliffe did consider bidding when Rain first asked for interest. And he also tried to buy Chelsea in 2019. So it's somebody that knows the football club that has fleshed out a form of a pitch, but has not followed the process. So does he at the moment have extensive plans of roadmap and accurate costings for the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge? What's he going to do with the Chelsea women's team? Does he know what the Chelsea wage bill is? Has he done any current due diligence? The answer I would hazard a guess, certainly to the due diligence, I would say positively, is a firm no. So Bowley is ahead and not in a way where Ratcliffe can catch Bowley. Bowley is going to complete a one-week period of exclusivity to try and get this done. Now, if in that one-week period of exclusivity, Chelsea determine he is not the right bid or Bowley decides for whatever reason to pull out, then Ratcliffe can enter the fray. But they will not be allowed to go against each other head to head because effectively they're in different processes and different races. And because Chelsea have put Bowley forwards as the preferred bidder working with Rain, Bowley will have every opportunity first to get this sale done before Ratcliffe gets any real opportunity to pitch. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that definitely, that definitely explains it, that they're, it's really not head to head in that aspect. That's good to know. Um, and it essentially does seem like it's, it's bullies to lose or to choose to lose at this point. Um, or just to add Chelsea's to determine that they don't want their preferred bidder. So yeah. in the one week that happens in a traditional sale, it would be about an agreement already being reached. So then mm-hmm. the owners in the period of exclusivity would be on the suitor to come in and ask any final questions and get to a point where they want to sign a purchase agreement. But in this scenario, with so many suitors and speed being of the essence, Chelsea could say, well, there's an unexpected delay, we're losing patience. Or they could say, you don't want to commit to this. And actually, it's become really important. So these kind of back and forths and questions from both sides should have already passed. And in the next week, it would normally be a smooth process. But if for any reason, Chelsea determine, even though they have a preferred bidder, that they would like to explore another option, they can. So it's not a case once your preferred bidder that you are guaranteed anything. It's just that logically, having gone through the whole process, you don't tend to become a preferred bidder 
unless most of the agreements, especially with the sale being done at speed, have already been put in place. So we can assume, and sources also confirm elements of this, that because of the need to finalise everything at super speed, Chelsea would not select a preferred bidder unless they were happy with that preferred bidder and almost everything was in place to get to the point of a purchase agreement and a sale. But there can be hurdles. And Newcastle is a good example of that. The Newcastle ownership group entered into the Premier League's owners and directors test thinking the deal was done. And they said very openly, even if it was just gamesmanship, that there were no red flags. But there were red flags, a lot of them. And some of them might have been unbeknown to the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, Amanda Staveley and Jamie Rubin, the three different ownership components of Newcastle United at that time. And I'm not saying it's going to be the case in this scenario, but again, I reiterate that it is not in Chelsea's interest. It's not logical and it's not sensible to select a preferred bidder because this sale needs to be done so quickly that they do not want to own Chelsea Football Club. And if that is the case, then the Bowley group can be very confident that they'll not only complete the sale quickly, but that the Ratcliffe bid is not of concern to them. That makes a lot of sense. And so regardless of who the owner ends up being, obviously leaning maybe in one direction now, do you think, um, just an opinion, that Chelsea will continue to operate similarly to how they have under Roman Abramovich? Or do you think with the, a new bidder coming in, that starts a cycle where it begins to be viewed as more of an investment, especially having just sunk this much money into bidding and then maybe doing redevelopment, infrastructure, et cetera. Do you think, how do you think maybe the club operations might change or stay the same as this goes forward? It's a good question. I think there's a few things to say. First of all, if we're talking operationally in terms of, let's say, personnel, then there'll be a transition period and a number of Chelsea's senior executives, including Bruce Buck, are highly likely to stay at least for a short period of time to make sure that things are smooth. But if we're talking specifically about Abramovich's Chelsea, how it operated, how he spent, what his philosophy, strategy and structure was, then it will be completely different because as much as Chelsea fans like Roman Abramovich and his approach yielded countless trophies in modern football, Roman Abramovich's business plan or strategy is simply not sustainable. And Chelsea fans may love it because they're not balancing the books and they may enjoy the success on the field. But the Bowley group and all of the failed suitors were offering something far more sustainable in multiple ways. So, of course, you want to maintain the football success, but the football club needs modernising. And the Bowley group had by far the strongest plans to renovate Stamford Bridge. So if they're successful, that's really exciting. And they'll do it in a phased development to allow fans to continue to watch matches. And Bowley himself undertook in the last kind of 12 to 16 months a redevelopment of the Dodger Stadium for something in the region of 100 to 150 million US dollars. And that has been a large success and Jonathan Goldstein's part of the bid as well, who's a property developer who will lead the redevelopment and has huge expertise. And Dave Hickey is also a consultant on the bid who was the failed project 
manager for Roman Abramovich's attempted redevelopment of Stamford Bridge. So another person that can help with the transition and knows what Abramovich was thinking when he was trying to modernise and renovate Stamford Bridge. So there's experts there. And then when I use the word sustainable, what I mean is that Chelsea and modern football can't keep just spending for glory. And I think Abramovich realised that when he first came to the football club, he was one of the only people doing it and he could pull out a checkbook and Chelsea could ultimately get who they wanted. And now under the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules, under financial fair play in the post-COVID era with a new player like Newcastle United and a relatively new player historically anyway, like Manchester City, money alone, buying the best players in the Premier League anyway and in the Champions League doesn't just keep guaranteeing you success. And you can't have this philosophy that is if we win the Champions League and the Premier League the books will balance but if we don't then we've spent a lot of money and it's very difficult to get a return on that and if Chelsea were to fall out of the top four and Manchester United and Arsenal and even Tottenham have found this over countless seasons in perhaps the last five to ten years suddenly you take such a hit financially that you start losing profit. So then how do you offset that? You need to grow as a brand. You need to get bigger shirt sponsors. You need to find a way of balancing the books. You need to try and develop academy talent through because that's ultimately cheaper. And if they succeed, you have a player that hasn't cost you anything. And if they don't succeed, you can still sell them for a very large amount because a player, Conor Gallagher, is a good example that is a star and might well be amazing for Chelsea. But if not, still somebody out there that you can sell for 50 million, which is a large amount of money to inject back into your football club. And Tino Livramento is another example of that off he goes to Southampton, unfortunately has an ACL injury, but Chelsea have got a buyback clause. So you sort of get the best of both worlds. So how do you put structure behind that? So your incoming and outgoing recruitment ultimately doesn't just save the club money, but creates pathways in a way that is sensible and sustainable. And Abramovich has maybe been guilty of being more cutthroat and spending money, bringing in a surplus to requirements. So too many players at Chelsea don't get first team action, get loaned out, find that their careers kind of end at the football club. And it's obviously very easy to look at the success stories as well, but there's a number of players that are huge talents that never really get the love, the attention and the opportunities to make it. And they fall down the football pyramid and it's of no concern to Chelsea. And modern football clubs need to start thinking not just about who's the right talent, but who's the right fit, and then look after their players as footballers, but also their mental health, their education, and their personal development as well. And I think the Bowley Group, and as I understand it, all three consortiums are very intent on putting that structure and player welfare in place. And in the long run, that will benefit Chelsea on the football field. And the challenge with Abramovich is that he didn't really talk to fans, to the media, and we don't know how much control he really had over any day-to-day -day signings. But the feeling is, is that Abramovich was cutthroat with managerial appointments and then gave his managers a lot of say. And then those managers brought players that fit their style. And then when a new manager comes in, you're left with a load of star players that don't necessarily fit into the new manager and the new system. 
So I think what we'll see with the new owner of Chelsea, and for the purpose of this conversation, let's assume that it is the Todd Bowley group, is they will come in and create a more foolproof strategy around the football side that can live and function smoothly regardless of who is the manager. So it will be more reflective of a Liverpool who have a transfer committee and Thomas Tuchel or whoever managers are in the future will have to buy into that. And then as a consequence, there's a bit more stability. And I think Chelsea will ultimately sign less players and invest more money in trying to develop the academy. And I also think that they'll further grow and integrate the women's team into the Chelsea brand. And Abramovich did a decent job of that. And Emma Hayes has done a phenomenal job at Chelsea Women. But how, regardless of funding them and where they play, how can you grow the brand simultaneously when you're marketing it? And how can you build the men and the women together? So we had a scenario only a few days back where Chelsea men, Chelsea women play exactly the same time, which should really never happen because what you want is to allow both teams to have a stage and market them to some extent to the same audiences. There'll be different audiences for men and women's football, but there'll be some crossover as well. And it's really important that Chelsea see that strategy as a football club and as a brand as one and market them together, but also give them the space to go in separate directions. And you can't do that if they're playing at the same time. And I think that the Bowley group recognises a lot of that and will be more hands-on than Abramovich, will be more sustainable than Abramovich and will be more engaged than Abramovich. And it makes total sense to target those things because if the new owner of Chelsea Football Club just tried to come in and be Abramovich, all they would do is set the football club up for failure because in the post-COVID, post-Abramovich era, the only way Chelsea are going to maintain themselves at the top for the long term is by trying to maintain what they've got, first and foremost, obviously on the football side, but then as seasons pass, be as sustainable and strategic as they possibly can in order to grow the football club and grow the brand. Because if they don't do that, they'll fall behind other clubs, which is exactly what's happened to Manchester United in the post-Alex Ferguson era. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good analysis. And I think the real question now moving into this next stage, we know it will be it will be handled differently, obviously, because things are going to have to modernize. Systems are going to have to change a bit. What do you think the next 30 days look like in terms of can all these logistics be done? Do you think it's realistic to have this done by that deadline that's been talked about the 31st of May? Do you think given where they are at this stage in the process, things can wrap up in the given time frame? I think it's entirely realistic and I don't think Chelsea will have much choice. I don't see how Sir Jim Ratcliffe completes the sale in the next 30 days full stop. In his statement, he said he could buy the club quickly, but let's not forget he's the owner of Nice and would have to resolve that situation in the same way that Paliuka would have to clarify in writing how he was going to deal with his Atlanta majority stake in Serie A. So Ratcliffe has a problematic scenario because he first has to pitch then he has to do due diligence. Then he has to inform all of the third parties, the Premier League and the government, all in a short space of time, whilst probably coming under criticism for bypassing the process. 
And that would be farcical if he takes over Chelsea. So I'm not saying that it's impossible, but it would be bonkers if it happened to go to all this trouble, cost, energy of filtering out suitors to put a rigid process in place and then go, oh, even though we've got a preferred bidder, we're going to sell to the guy that came in at the last minute and bid outside of the process. But from Bowley's perspective, the roadmap for the next 30 days is very simple. So the due diligence supposedly had to be done before the final offer came in. And then there's been back and forth for about two weeks to clarify various points on both sides. And now there's a preferred bidder. The period of exclusivity will be a week. And in that week, they should get to a purchase agreement. If they get to a purchase agreement, they will find themselves in the first week of May and they'll have something in the region of four weeks to then get to a final sale. And I think if the government see that and they needed a few extra days, then there might be some leeway with the special license, although that's not been confirmed by any government sources at this point because they're trying to keep with this narrative that Chelsea are on borrowed time because they want to make sure that there's no hidden surprises. And the fact they've said that probably will put Chelsea off going down the Ratcliffe route. So from Bowley's perspective, once you get to a purchase agreement, let's just say for the sake of it, at the end of the one week period of exclusivity, so at the end of the first week in May, then he has to, and his group, any listed directors have to formally undergo the Premier League's owners and directors test. And that can take at its fastest between five and 10 days, but at its slowest, 18 months, as Newcastle United found. But the difference here is the Premier League were asked to soft vet listed directors from all of the prospective consortiums, including the Bowley Group. So the Bowley Group are confident that it will be a fast process and the Premier League should be fully cooperative because they themselves want a quick Chelsea sale. It's very much in their interest, but they still have to do it by the book. And the owners and directors test isn't just vetting the prospective owners and directors, as the name suggests. It's also looking at the business plan for three years. So until a final offer came in and all the back and forth is done, the Premier League can't see a final business plan. So they should only be able to look at that either next week or after the purchase agreement is signed. So that's going to take between five and 10 days. And then the government will obviously have to sign off the new license of sale as well. And that should be a relatively speedy process. So if everything goes according to plan, I actually think that Chelsea would have by my maths, not that it really means anything and it's only my opinion and every takeover is different, but by my maths, if everything goes according to plan, Chelsea would actually have a week to spare and they would wrap up this sale in the week starting before their 31st deadline. And then they've got a little bit of leeway. And maybe if there's a delay or an extra hurdle, the government will show a little bit of kindness and leeway. And if they know it's only days away, extend the special license by a day or two. And from Chelsea's perspective, if you take the special deadline away, the real deadline from the football side is actually the 10th of June, because that's when the transfer window opens. And Chelsea want to make sure that they get into that transfer window with the funds and the ability to sign new players, potentially renew existing contracts, but also that any targets are not put off by the uncertainty and maybe choose to go elsewhere as a result. So if you ask Thomas Tuchel when he needs it done by, I'm sure he'd say it's June the 10th. If you ask the government when they need it done by, they'll obviously say May the 31st. And if you ask the Bowley group when they think they can get it done by, I think they're confident it's well within that deadline, if not the week before.
Okay, well, that's, that's very good to know that things should work out and we should be fine. Uh, obviously, it's been a bit of a tough process, but I'll move on now. I think Rahul has a couple uh, final questions for you, but thank you for, for breaking that down. That brought a lot more insight than I think almost any Chelsea fan has had thus far of a process that's been very confusing to many. So thank you for that. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to echo what Alex said. I've been listening uh, to the questions and, and the responses. And uh, for the longest time, the three of us have done a lot of episodes in the last few weeks, months, and uh, spoken maybe more from a fan perspective, but having you on and kind of breaking things down, breaking things down has been very helpful. I'm going to shift over. I know we've spoken a lot about the ownership. You've touched on the topic that I want to cover here, which is the Women's Super League. Uh, specifically Chelsea focus. I know you you were a commentator for the 1920 season on the league. Uh, so you're close to uh, some of the things that we'll talk about here. Um, just in terms of growth of the league, we've seen, at least here in the U.S. over the last couple of seasons, NBC actually streams most of the games. Uh, so from your side and in, in the U.K., the growth of the league and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say from a work point of view, being a staffer at CBS, is that in <laughs> North America, we're delighted to be taking on the WSL rights from next season. Right. And we've got big, big plans. And a large part of growing the league is in having international global broadcasters. So exactly. when a few seasons back, the FA player started, which is a wonderful addition, it made the league accessible. And then the challenge after that was taking rights that in a lot of regions were free and commercializing them. And NBC and Atta Football in North America have done a fantastic job. And we're fortunate to now inherit a popular and wonderful product that isn't just the Women's Super League, it's also the Women's Championship as well. And for anybody that away from Chelsea wants to see a story in the championship or even two stories, Look at clubs like Lewis FC who stand for equality and they pay their men and women the same and they beat the champions Liverpool on the final game of the season. Or go and look at the goal from Molly Green for Coventry United in the seventh minute of injury time, a 35-yard free kick rifled into the top left-hand corner to keep Coventry United up in the league. And this is a team that in the middle of the season were going extinct, out of business. They told their players that that was it. And then they got a last minute save. They were deducted 10 points. They were bottom of the table. And as the fixtures had it, they went away at Watford, who were second bottom on the last game of the season. Watford needed a point. Coventry needed all three points. Seven minutes into injury time, it's nil-nil. You're 35 yards out and Green scores an absolute worldie and Coventry stay up. And there's stories like this all throughout the WSL and the Women's Championship and well beyond in the fourth tier of English football today. Newcastle women played for the first time at St. James's Park in front of over 22,000. But coming back to the WSL, the growth is in the product and men and women's football shouldn't only be compared. Of course, it helps for a women's football club looking to grow to have a brand affiliated to it like Chelsea, and that can come with funding as well. But they're different products. And what I love about women's football is the fan engagement and the way in which if you turn up, it can be a safe space, it can be more inclusive, it can be more diverse, you can have greater personalities, you can have accessibility to the players. And all of this should be marketed 
positively and globally where possible, but domestically in terms of getting bums on seats in the stadium. And by doing that, what you do is inspire. And you can inspire in lots of different ways. You can inspire the next generation of female talent to come through and genuinely believe that they can be footballers. And the funding helps and the accessibility helps and the support from Chelsea helps because obviously the standard improves. And not only does the standard improve, but the wages improve and the stability improves. So if 10 years ago you said to a eight-year-old girl and an eight-year-old boy, do you want to play for Chelsea? The boy would have said, great, there's a career there for me. And the parents probably would have agreed. And the girl and the parents would have said, well, wait a minute, what does it pay? Where's the stability? What if my daughter gets injured? Who's going to support her? If she doesn't make it at Chelsea, where does she go next? And so on. But now the pathways are clearer. And because the pathways are clearer, the standard will improve because you can be full-time, you can get coached to a higher level. And then what we're seeing from TV partners, both globally and domestically in the United Kingdom, is more support, more exposure, more sponsorship. And things like the Women's Euros this summer will obviously help as well, specifically for the WSL, as do signings like Tobin Heath, who unfortunately has returned to America with a hamstring injury, but she was at Arsenal and Spurs before that. And, you know, Tottenham is a good example because it didn't really work out. She didn't get that much game time, but she was still there on posters. She still drew a crowd. She still had a big social following. I think her social following was actually bigger than Tottenham's. So that helps, again, market the league. And it's interesting because women's football in North America has obviously always been about the WSL. And there's a great new women's league that's just started by the USL as well that's been founded yeah. by a friend of mine Amanda van der Voort who used to be at MLS and FIFA Pro and she does a wonderful job and these leagues are great but you don't start necessarily with the same global fan base because they're not Chelsea they're not Manchester United they're not Arsenal they're not Manchester City so now what we're seeing is those clubs realize how important the women's teams are at every single level on the football side in the community side on the commercial side they are vital and chelsea women are a great example of that because they are under a brilliant manager in emma hayes they've got sam kerr and when she's fit and let's hope she can get back to football ASAP because she's a fantastic ambassador and a talented football player. Fran Kirby as well. Penilla Harder, record signing, scored a crucial penalty in the latest win for Chelsea. And on the field, they are the perfect example of a team that when they go on a run can captivate anybody and by anybody I mean the existing fan base that love women's football and a new audience that perhaps haven't seen Chelsea women play before but watch them on the big stage and go wow not only is this a great product but it's an exciting product and it's a different product and they fall in love with the game and they come back and slowly the team and the wider audience for the league and the women's championship grows. So there's loads of different players that have got parts here. Funding is a part of it. Coaching is a part of it. Pathways is a part of it. The club themselves are a big part of it. The broadcasters have a crucial role to play domestically and globally. Social media and the players as well. And women's footballers are better than men's footballers at kind of telling their own stories, athlete-led stories. And that helps with the fan engagement as well. And then fundamentally, 
a little bit like the Premier League, when we get to the back end of the season, just a good old-fashioned, exciting, thrilling title race. And the WSL has always given us relatively close races. And everyone is obviously looking at Liverpool and Manchester City in the men's game, but Chelsea and Arsenal are giving us an absolutely fantastic run-in at the moment. Chelsea have played a game more. They're top at the moment. They're on a winning streak. They're on 53 points. Arsenal, exactly the same. They've got Miedemar. They score goals for fun. They're compelling, exciting to watch. They're fast on the counter-attack. They're clinical. And they've got that one game in hand and they're on 49 points. So if they win it, they'll go to 52. And then much like Liverpool and Manchester City, there'll only be a point between them. And Arsenal have got Tottenham next in a North London derby. And then they go away at West Ham, who have had a great season. And that's not an easy fixture. And then Chelsea comparatively ground out a very hard-earned win away at Birmingham, And that's not an easy place to go, even though they're weaker than they were a few seasons ago. And then they've got Manchester United, which is going to be the really tricky game to see whether they can get over the line and win the title. And I'm excited just thinking about it. And then let's not forget Chelsea have got the FA Women's Cup final against Manchester City as well. So when we're talking about how you grow the league, you do so by trying to be the best in the world to attract the best stars. And the WSL is growing in that respect. And it's got players like Harder and some NWSL stars and some US women's national team players. So that's a plus. And then when you provide the drama and the theater on the field, that helps as well. Because deep down at the moment anyway, even though Lyon is the powerhouse in European women's football, and even though there's huge clubs in North America that have attracted the likes of Megan Rapino, for example, I think every women's footballer, because they haven't had the chance if they're of that older generation to come through this kind of new norm, because what we're doing is we're normalizing women's football. So what we don't want to do is ever be patronizing or glib or one off about it. So you have to be careful about saying, should they play at Stamford Bridge once? And the answer is yes. But the answer is always, well, we need a norm. And we don't want to be surprised by big attendances. We don't want to be surprised by the quality because we're not five years ago, 10 years ago. So we have to normalize women playing football at all levels and then realize that it's just a great product and it's a different product. And when we do that, we create something that is authentic. And if we get there, then women's football is not only going to compete with men's football, it's going to rival men's football and that is the beauty when you can have choice and quality and compelling stories and well-supported teams inclusive teams diverse teams talented teams that are everywhere in the men's game and the women's game but to the generation before that never had that opportunity never got the pay some of them weren't even full-time to have that opportunity like Tobin Heath who is an Arsenal fan, to have that opportunity to go to the global club that you grew up on the men's side supporting, you're like, wow. And I think that that's the lure and the WSL can maximize that growth. So as I said before, you you don't want the women's league in England to just try and replicate or only play off the men's league. 
but one aspect of lure, particularly to players now, because make no mistake, the players are going to benefit from all this funding and sponsorship are probably only between eight and 14 years of age at the moment. And they're the ones that in 10 odd years time are going to burst onto the scene suddenly with incredible coaching pathways, let's hope wages as well. And they will really reap the benefits of now. But if you're sort of a 28 to 34 year old player now, and you've gone through the hardship and suddenly Manchester United come calling, Chelsea come calling, you're going to be like, wow, I can wear that shirt. And I've watched that team all my life. Maybe you're a supporter of them. And that's the kind of lure of a Premier League brand. And I suppose, you know, PSG have it. Barcelona obviously have it Leon to some extent have it but the NWSL teams don't as much so that will allow the WSL and other European leagues much like in the men's game to catch up with some of the bigger women's leagues globally and ultimately surpass them and the WSL is ultimately getting there so you know the short answer to your question is it has to be pathways wages sponsorship funding broadcasters fan engagement the athletes themselves they've all got to make a concerted and unified effort to play their part and if they do then the WSL which is already getting very very big and to a high standard is just going to explode and the women's euros this summer will obviously help as well yeah absolutely and, and just listening to your passion and excitement towards the future of, of the women's game but just the game in general uh, gets us excited and, and since we've been doing this podcast for the last 18 months we've covered the Chelsea women specifically uh, regularly and, and they've hit the heights that I think they previously in terms of the Champions League at least making the final we're always aspiring mm. to be and, and going there last season and making it to the final obviously it didn't go the way we wanted it to but I think that's something that makes them want to go back again and, and do it again and even this season fighting for the WSL like you mentioned and I actually just finished watching the game you were talking about against Birmingham City that that storyline there was obviously about Chelsea winning the title but Birmingham were trying to fight for their lives maybe stay in the league and so it's it's engaging and it gets you gets you into it into the fact that yes there's a top of the table team uh, top of the table team here that could easily blow this team away but they didn't it came down to one instance which was a handball and the penalty which gets you the, the win so i think you're right it, it, the overall game in the women's league and, and globally is is changing and we're here to support it at the premier Chelsea, and I, I know you do that on on, your, on twitter as well i did see the the 95th, 97th minute goal that you posted, uh, which was which was exciting, I, I have to share. So uh, I was going to focus on the Chelsea side, but I think you've done a great job touching on it. So we'll switch over and just go to the Premier League side. I know we're about to hit an hour here. Uh, coming to the Premier League, wanted to get your thoughts on who do you think wins it, making the top four. Uh, we had a bad loss today, and I'm a little uncertain about our, our future here with at least the top four. Uh, and then who do you think is maybe the, the two teams that go down with North City? So let's start with the, the title race. Yeah, the title race, I think, is Manchester City's. And it's unfortunate for Liverpool because they're in equally as majestic form. But Man City, for me, have the easier run in. And maybe the only banana skin because they're in form is their next league game, which is at home to Newcastle. But the fact that they're at home and Newcastle don't travel as well probably still means in my mind that they take all three points in that. I don't see them slipping up away at Wolves because Wolves have kind of tapered off in the last few weeks. Away at, Man away at West Ham it is probably the one question mark 
And then last game of the season, home to Aston Villa, they're winning that one. And, you know, we saw Arsenal win away at West Ham this weekend. And I think that Manchester City don't slip up in that game. So I think they win all of their last games, which of course means my prediction therefore has to be Manchester City win the Premier League title. From Liverpool's perspective, they got a really hard fought win away at Newcastle. They were much better than 1-0 suggested. And after that, they focus on Villarreal. But from a league perspective, away from the Champions League, I just don't like Liverpool's running. I think home to Tottenham is tricky. Away at Villa, I think that they are going to win. They have the focus on the quadruple and they'll obviously have to play Chelsea in the FA Cup final to try and get there. But it's almost like in trying to win the quadruple and balance all of those things, plus these difficult fixtures, it's going to be very difficult for them not to slip up at least once in the Premier League And I think that Klopp, even though he's tactically astute and he knows his team certainly better than someone like me, so I don't want to be presumptuous, but, you know, when I saw the lineup against Newcastle, that's a reflection of a team going for the quadruple. And to see Salah on the bench, you're like, yikes, are they going to get away with this? And I think if they have to rest anyone in a game like Tottenham or away at Southampton or, you know, these type of matches where... They're fine margins and a team towards the end of the season, particularly a home team against Liverpool, like a Southampton with nothing to play for, can be a bit freer. They might just nick something off them. And that makes me feel like Liverpool are going to draw a game and Manchester City are going to win all of theirs. But, you know, my main point is not about what Liverpool do. It's just I don't think Manchester City drop any points in the Premier League. So even if Liverpool prove me wrong and win all of their games, you still get a scenario where it's 12 more points for Manchester City and 12 more points for Liverpool. And then from Chelsea's point of view, I think they're fine. Obviously, that's good to hear. (laughs) Really disappointing result against Frank Lampard's Everton. But it's this stage of the season. Everton desperately needed that because if they lost to Chelsea, they would have been five points adrift of safety. So you get these kind of surges from lower teams. You know, my team, Leicester, before we won the Premier League in 15-16, in 14-15, we had the great escape. And out of nowhere, we found an incredible run of form and we beat absolutely everyone. So I'm not surprised that, as ever, and Premier League history tells us there's an Everton a Burnley, they're horrible teams to play at this stage of the season, particularly away from home. But I think Chelsea are fine because, you know, you've got a cushion as far as the top four is concerned. You might fall from third to fourth, but I don't see you falling from third to fifth. So you've got Wolves, and I think that you beat Wolves because I've already said they're out of form. Away at Leeds, they're fighting for their lives but I think that it's a good kind of team for Chelsea to play because they're so open, less open under Bielsa uh, compared to Marsh now, uh, or less open, I should say, under Marsh now compared to Bielsa, uh, but um, still, I think that Chelsea are scoring one or two in that game, and I don't see Leeds, therefore, beating Chelsea. So even in a worst-case scenario, I think it's three from Wolves and at least one from the Leeds trip. And then home to Leicester. And I'm a Leicester fan. um, So I'd love to say that we would beat you, but we've tapered off. We were well beaten again by Tottenham today. So 
you get something from that game, um, I'm going to show some loyalty to Leicester and say <laughs> it's at least a point for my side. Uh, so by my maths, let's do the pessimistic tally. That's three from Wolves, one from Leeds, one from Leicester. And then, of course, you absolutely thrash Watford on the last game of the season. So that gives you eight more points, which means that your final tally by my maths would be 74. And Arsenal can only get 75 and Tottenham cannot get 74. So that means that you're guaranteed top four, at least if we're going by my math. So I think you're going to be okay. And then it's very difficult to predict the fourth team because Arsenal have obviously got to play Spurs. And I think whoever finishes fourth uh, will be based upon what happens in that North London derby. So if Spurs win the North London derby, they leapfrog Arsenal, they finish fourth. If Arsenal draw or win in the North London derby, then they're the side that's going to finish fourth. And then at the bottom of the table, it's just so difficult at the moment because everyone's found a bit of form. Everton won and Burnley are on fire. And that means that the side everyone's questioning is Leeds United, who had a little bit of a surge under Jesse Marsh, but they lost 4-0 to Manchester City. They got hard-earned point that might still prove crucial away at Crystal Palace. And they got a big, big 3-0 win away at Watford. So, you know, they're still not on terrible form, but... When you look at their running compared to the other sides at the bottom, Arsenal don't think they'll win. Chelsea don't think they'll win, which means that they could easily head into the last two games of the season in the bottom two. And then they need a result at home to Brighton and or away at Brentford. And I think that they are going to struggle, especially under a new manager that hasn't been in this position. I think Everton have got a game in hand. And their running is a little bit easier because they've got a way at Watford from memory. They've certainly got to play home to Brentford, home to Crystal Palace. And they've also got to go to the King Power and play against Leicester City. And like I say, we're not in great form. And then they'll finish the season away at Arsenal. If they're in the bottom three away at Arsenal, they're in big trouble. But I think they'll be well clear of the bottom three. In fact, I think by May the 19th, after that Palace game at home, I think they'll be mathematically safe because I think that they get something at Leicester. I think they beat Watford. I think they beat Brentford at home. And I think they beat or draw with Palace at home. And that for me will be enough. So then you're really then looking at Burnley or Leeds for me. And again, Burnley's running is just easier than Leeds is running. So if they beat Villa next, maybe they get something on the final game of the season at home to Newcastle. They've got an away game at Villa, actually, as well. It's an odd fixture quirk because of the rearrangements and stuff. So they've got to play Villa twice. I think they get something from one of those Villa games. And then I think if they need to, they beat a Newcastle side at Turf Moor who have got nothing to play for. So I think that, you know, when you spell it all out in your head at the bottom, I think of the sides in the mix, Everton and Burnley will get more points than Leeds over their remaining games. And Leeds have only got a two-point cushion from safety. So my bottom three joining Watford and Norwich is Leeds. And my top four in this order is Man City and Liverpool and then Chelsea. And then if I really had to be pushed on it between Spurs and Arsenal, I'm going to say Arsenal. Okay, well, I we'd love to, not love, we'd like to see Man City win it because we, we obviously don't want Liverpool to do a quadruple. <laughs> Um, and hopefully we can stop them in the FA Cup too. And, and you've made me a little more optimistic about our chances for the top four, especially after 
the result today. But I did finally, last question here on Leicester City. I know you were born in Leicester, I believe, and, and have followed them uh, all your life and actually were covering them for that uh, miraculous title win season. But they're in the Conference League this season. They're in the semifinals against Jose Mourinho's Roma. They drew the first game 1-1. Uh, can they win it? Uh, overall in terms of the whole competition because that would be a, a brilliant addition to the title that they won, the FA Cup last season and uh, maybe a European trophy as well. Yeah, it's been a strange season because we're spoilt. Having won the Premier League, you then look at the following years. Unfortunately, we lost the owner, Kung Vishai, right. to a horrific, tragic helicopter crash. And that, I think, has brought everyone closer together and the ownership group continue to be in charge and inform everything. And they're wonderful owners, kind owners, generous owners, charitable owners, patient owners. They're everything that you want. And having won the Premier League and been in the Champions League and had some tremendous occasions, beating Sevilla, playing Atletico Madrid, really, really unprecedented times for Leicester. And yet after all of that, the post-Ranieri squad now under Rodgers, when fit, are stronger and better. And the only unlucky or sad, I suppose, narrative on the football field is we've had two seasons where we could and should have got into the Champions League. One where there was a big break because of COVID-19 and Leicester had a huge lead and they came back a completely different side. And then last season where we were pipped out of it on the final day. But again, we blew a big lead. And to have qualified for the Champions League in one or both those seasons would have made a huge difference to how the club can develop. And now we've had a season full of injuries. There's barely been fit defenders at times. And even though there's still great players, Vardy obviously is coming to the end of his career and needs replacing. And Iheanacho, even though he's weighed in with some big goals and Dakar, aren't necessarily going to get you the sort of 20 to 25 that Vardy got for Leicester during his peak. We lost N'Golo Kante to Chelsea. I'd take him back because there's some talk that Chelsea might want to offload him, which is ridiculous because usually you'd look at age, but even when Kante is 100, he's still <laughs> going to play like an 18-year-old. So keep him for as long as you can. And then at the back, we've got great young players like Fafana, who unfortunately has been injured, Castagne, who's had some head injury problems, Pereira, who has been a phenomenal player for Leicester before he got injured in the earlier part of his career, but never quite came back the same player. And, you know, Leicester just don't have the same kind of depth of Chelsea. So we now enter into this season in sort of mid-table mediocrity, unfortunately, but make no mistake, mid-table for Leicester... In the 90s under Martin O'Neill, you would have bitten the handoff for. Mid-table mediocrity, the season when it started under Ranieri, after we had the great escape, you would have bitten the handoff for. So we've been spoiled and blessed by this fairy tale. So everyone else is kind of criticising the Europa Conference League. And when Leicester dropped out of the Europa League into the Europa Conference League, Brendan Rodgers said he didn't even know what it was. But now we're in a European semi-final. And I think I speak for most Leicester fans when I say it's amazing to have an occasion at the King Power Stadium against a Jose Mourinho Roma side to be able to travel to the Stadio Olimpico and see that as a Leicester fan. We should only get these moments once in a lifetime, but somehow we've had them all clustered together, highs and lows in the space of 
five or six seasons. But there's a lot of incentive for Leicester because, you know, 99 seasons out of 100, even though I made the point about us reaching the Champions League, 99 seasons out of 100, we should at best be challenging for European football. And if we do that with regularity, and sure, some seasons we get a bit higher, amazing. But Leicester fans would take European football every season at any level. So now, being only mid-table and having tapered off in the league and having all these injuries, the Europa Conference League is not just a wonderful opportunity to qualify for the Europa League next season, but it's a first chance for Leicester City Football Club to be in a European final. And I don't care if other people laugh at that, mock that, put an asterisk by that and say it's the Conference League final. It is an official European final. And if we get there, <coughs> excuse me, it will be fantastic. Absolutely. And, and, and I think just you listening to you speak about a European final, right? I think that's one of the intentions of why the European Conference League was put into place. Obviously, with the likes of Spurs getting into it uh, and Roma getting into it, people started kind of bantering those teams. But you're absolutely right. I think having an away night, like you said, in Rome this, this uh, Thursday would be something that lesser fans maybe five, six, seven years ago would dream of. And so uh, it's, a, it's great. And it's, that's the beauty of football. And I personally hope you make it to the final. I didn't enjoy losing the FA Cup final to you guys last season, but it is what it is. Uh, but that brings us to the end of the episode. We've, I speak, I think I speak for the three of us. We've had a very insightful episode on the ownership part and, as, and also listening to uh, some of the other things you've shared with us. So we'd like to thank you very much. And, and it was a privilege chatting with you. And hopefully we will have you back on an episode in the near future. Uh, Jackie, Alex, any parting thoughts from you guys? Yeah, just really quickly, Ben, it's been an honor. And it's, it's nice to hear your perspective on things that I would never imagine as a Chelsea fan, sometimes we're blinded to things that are going in and around our club. And honestly, the passion you have for Leicester City, love that. And I hope that they can do something against Jose Mourinho's Roma and make a final. That'd be exciting for you guys as well. Yeah, I'll be there if we make it. Yeah. That's sure. <laughs> as a fan. That's exciting. I hope, I hope you get to be there and enjoy it and hopefully get a result out of it. I think, by the way, just to finish as well, the thing about that game, the semi-final, is that the name of the tournament and the context of what's come before it goes out the window. Right. And as a fan, you just move into a feeling of we're going to Rome yeah. to play against one of the most historic teams in world football. And the manager's Jose Mourinho and the stadium's incredible and a ton of people from Leicester would have never been there before. And they'll play their strongest side and we'll play our strongest side. And even that semi-final, because it's 1-1, will feel like a final to us. Right. And then if we win, we're in an actual final and it's a chance to win an inaugural trophy. It's a chance to go in the history books and it's an opportunity to have a moment as a fan group and for multiple families in Leicester as well not only have we never experienced, but we'll get to experience off the back of the sterility of COVID-19, of behind closed doors games, of a personal tragedy, of dads and mums not being able to watch games with their sons and daughters, of grandfathers and grandmothers not being able to go to games and having to isolate. And 
you know, people will mock the Europa Conference League and Leicester, our manager, as I said before, did mock the Europa Conference <laughs> League, but all that's out the window yep. now. We're in Rome, it's 1-1, it's all to play for, and if we are to be successful, we're making a first. And that's a first because the Europa Conference League is new, and it's a first because Leicester have never been in a European final and we will enjoy it whatever happens and that's the beauty of football and that's sort of the weird difference between Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool and Leicester that everyone's a football club and Leicester want to develop and challenge the top four and you want that ego and you want to feel like we're a big club and when you're a big club certain tournaments are in inverted commas beneath you or if they're not beneath you they are prioritised lower to put it uh, in a bit more PC way. So you play weaker sides and perhaps you don't mind if you go out because you have less fixtures. But when you're Leicester, you view football through a slightly different prism and the games are the same, the fixtures are the same, the stadiums are the same, the league's the same, but the culture and the mentality is different. And if you get a moment like a European final, an FA Cup final at any level, because you know that you're not going to have that every single season or you're not expected to anyway, you rally and you come together as a community and everyone talks about it in Leicester, you know, whether that's the butcher, the baker, the, as the phrase goes, candlestick maker, (laughs) that's a very British (laughs) phrase to use. My mum, who doesn't really like football, will know the score. My grandmother and grandfather, before they unfortunately passed away, would have a keen awareness of what was going on. And they'd name drop players when Leicester were winning the (laughs) Premier League. They would find a shirt to wear and they would watch Match of the Day with Gary Lineker, who's obviously from Leicester as well. And they'd go down to Leicester Market and they'd talk about it. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen when any football club does well, but... When comparative to Chelsea, you're a smaller football club. The whole community rallies together and really enjoys these moments. And we couldn't care less whether everyone outside of Leicester is laughing at that and saying that no one cares about the Europa Conference League. We're going to have a day out in Rome. We're going to have a day out if we make the final and we're going to enjoy it. And whether we win or we lose, whether we get mocked or we don't, if we're the first ever Europa Conference League champions, then we are going to wear that badge with pride, (laughs) even if other clubs laugh at it. No, absolutely. That's exciting. And I hope, I hope, I hope to see you guys in the final because maybe we can tune in and support Leicester for that day only, though. <laughs> and, and if you win it, like you said, you'll be the first ones and you'd have more European trophies in Leicester than in North London. So, <laughs> <laughs> Alex, I'll, I'll hand it over to you before we wrap it up. Yeah, no, I mean, what they have said, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to hear. It's offered some very good non-Chelsea perspective because I know we definitely do get caught up in our own fanhood at times. But yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure and and thank you. Hopefully the end of the season goes well for for both of us and everyone gets what they're looking for. Yes, good luck to Chelsea for the rest of the season. And obviously Chelsea did Leicester a big, big favour in helping us win the Premier League thanks to that famous Hazard goal whilst everyone else was at Jamie Vardy's house having a party and hopefully, therefore, that sort of affinity between the teams has created a nice bond. I remember actually when Leicester played Everton and actually had our own Premier League celebration, we also went to Chelsea and we were given a tunnel ovation and I think some flowers as well. And that was a really nice moment. Leicester have actually had a little bit of a 
habit of kind of having significant results against Chelsea, uh, both good and bad. One of my favourite Leicester games years back was when we had a caretaker manager and we played you in the League Cup, I believe. Hopefully I've got this right. And Chelsea won 4-3, but Leicester were 3-1 down, 3-1 ahead in the game. And we were kind of lower league at the time. I think we were championship at the time. And I was there and it was a really great moment. And then Frank Lampard ended up scoring <laughs> a, a late winner. And then there was a game I remember between Leicester and Chelsea, I think around December, when Mourinho was sacked from his second right. spell and Ranieri was in charge. And yeah. that was like retribution almost for Ranieri because <laughs> when they were in Italy together, uh, Mourinho had said some unsavory comments right. about Ranieri and they hadn't got on. And then there was Ranieri leading a side halfway at that stage towards the Premier League. And Mourinho was sacked after that defeat. So there's been some sort of intriguing games between the teams and obviously player transfers as yeah. well. Kante, drink water. water. Some people think even though it'd be from Manchester City that Mares might still end up at Chelsea as well. So th there's an odd affinity in the last sort of like good and bad, positive and negative, you know, wins, losses. There's a sort of interweaving of the clubs in a, a bizarre way. But I, I do think there's a lot of affection and respect between Leicester fans and Chelsea fans and the players as well. So uh, yeah, I wish you well for the rest of the season. And I don't think you need my luck to um, solidify and complete your top four place. But, you know, let's just hope that um, there's stability at the football club, that the new owner becomes apparent quickly, that the sides start winning again, that you lock in that Champions League spot and then you can focus on the off-season and go from uh, strength to strength. And uh, good luck to you and all of the uh, Chelsea fans, because I know what a great fan base it is. Thank you very much. And, and like we said, we wish you the best as well um, for Lesser and you personally. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us. And hopefully we'll get to chat with you in the very near future, or maybe under uh, a new owner for sure. Uh, and... That wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Please continue to subscribe, like, and follow us. It's at the Premier Chels on Apple, Spotify, Instagram, and on Twitter. It's at Premier Chels. Uh, and definitely give Ben a follow as well on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and check out his website as well. It's, I believe it's benjacobs.com. Uh, right, Ben-Jacobs. Ben Ben-Jacobs. We're going to check that out, though. I better update it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as always, send us your feedback, and we will be back with a new episode. But until then, stay safe and up the Chels. Hey guys, the Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home, so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.